Hello, and welcome to Experto Crede, the Minnesota Law Review podcast. I am your host, Karthik Raman, the lead online editor for Volume 104. Our podcast today will feature the keynote speaker from our Law Review Symposium from this year. The symposium focused on issues related to mass incarceration in America's criminal justice system. Our keynote speaker this year was Professor Rachel Barco. Professor Barco's scholarship and practice focuses on the intersection of administrative law, constitutional law, and criminal justice. She has authored more than 20 articles, co-authored a prominent criminal law casebook, and released a book this spring about breaking the cycle of mass incarceration. In her keynote speech, Ms. Barco discusses the political institutional dynamics that prompted and maintain mass incarceration in the United States. Without further ado, here is Professor Barco's keynote speech. Good morning, everyone. Uh, so this is a special treat in my first semester teaching at U of M uh, School of Law to introduce one of my mentors who had a lot to do with getting me here. Uh, Rachel Barco is Vice Dean and the Siegel Family Professor of Law of Regulatory Law and Policy at NYU. Uh, from 2013 to 2019, she served as a member of the United States Sentencing Commission. Uh, she writes at the intersection of administrative law and criminal law, and in particular, has done a lot of work bringing to bear the insights of administrative law and institutional design to the problems of criminal justice, and a lot of her work over the past uh, decades has shown all of the ways in which the political dysfunctions around criminal justice and criminal justice policymaking not only have contributed to the problems of mass incarceration, but have also made us in many ways less safe. Uh, her most recent book, Prisoners of Politics, draws on a lot of this work and will be the basis for her talk today. Uh, so please join me in welcoming uh, Professor Barco. Uh, thank you, Rachel. Thank you very much for having me. Give me one second to just get set up and the dilemma of the water. Okay. Um, well, thank you very much for having me. It's a wonderful to be here and in particular uh, to be talking about Frank Zimring's book. Um, I first met Frank um, shortly after I became a law professor. I don't know if you'll remember this, Frank, but it's in my mind um, quite clearly. So I was in awe. It was a panel at Columbia Law School, um, and I hadn't been in teaching for very long, and I was going to be on a panel with him. And I was explaining the thesis of my paper, uh, which was that fiscal changes that were happening in the states, I thought were going to bring about some kind of bigger uh, sentencing changes, um, but why they wouldn't happen at the federal level, because um, they weren't suffering from the same kind of co uh, constraints, um, and the politics were different. So you know, I gave my presentation, and then when it was Frank's turn, uh, he said that I was practicing social science without a license. Um, so Frank, I remain an unlicensed social science driver, uh, but I have never been, <laughs> been asked to go ahead and take the wheel again uh, to comment on both your book and I hope mine. Um, and thankfully for me, you do all the hard social science work um, in your draft um, and end up backing up, actually, observations that I make in my own book, uh, uh, which I use more political economy and some of the politics uh, and existing research and data that's out there on mass incarceration. Um, but we 
reach many of the same conclusions and even come to many of the same uh, proposed policies that could shift. So if a lawyer like me and a social scientist like you uh, end up in the same place, we're either both completely right um, or hopelessly wrong. But given your track record, I think we're right. Um, so to set the stage for my remarks, I want to start with a central point that uh, Frank emphasizes in at least the draft of the book that I uh, suspect will remain the same. And I highly recommend it, because uh, even in the draft version, it's absolutely fantastic. Um, and, and one of the things he emphasizes is that for all the talk around criminal justice reform in the United States and the emphasis that there's bipartisan movement to get things done, um, that in fact all the data and trends uh, point to us continuing to live with mass incarceration and excessive criminalization in the United States for the foreseeable future. And Frank explains in the book um, why there is so much momentum for mass incarceration and reminds us just how modest the reforms we've seen so far have been. Um, so I'm kind of a glass is half empty kind of person. Um, and Frank's book gives me reason to be that way when it comes to criminal justice reform. Um, so although more than half the states have lowered their incarceration rates, which is good, um, 16 states report an increase uh, in the number of prisoners uh, in, in 2016 as compared to uh, 2007. Um, moreover, if we look at the states that have lowered their prison populations, um, that decrease is actually pretty small when you compare it to the prison buildup that took place before that. Um, so there was an increase of about 77% between 1972 and 1981. Um, but the decrease from 2007 to 2016 was only about 7%. So that's an 11 to 1 differential. So the glass is actually like 11 twelfths empty um, if you're really trying to figure out where this uh, where this is. And the overall decrease was really driven by outliers like California, um, which was responsible for reducing the number of prisoners, and I'm getting all, a lot of these stats from Frank's draft, um, by uh, almost 44,000 people. And the other 49 states combined reduced it only by 38,000. So this is just to give you um, an outline of how this is not really a story of large-scale change happening everywhere. Um, and, and what I want to emphasize in my talk today is that it's it's not a good thing that things are staying where they are, um, not only because of the human toll, not only because of the racial disparities and the disproportionate impact, but also because uh, this is an abject failure if the goal is public safety and if the goal is maximizing our limited resources in the best possible way. Um, so I teach and write about criminal law and administrative law, as Maria pointed out, and I have always been struck by the contrast between the two areas. Um, so in one space where I teach and, and talk about things, we value expertise, we value data, um, we do cost-benefit analysis, we make our policymakers explain why they're doing what they're doing, and they face judicial review uh, to make sure they're not being arbitrary capricious. Um, and then in the other space, in criminal law, we just let policymakers go with their gut. Um, and uh, you know the expression when you're in law school that bad facts make bad law. Well, you know, criminal law is basically writ large just one example of that. Um, we get policies that are the result of bad facts that are on the news or in social media, um, and they may feel emotionally satisfying at the time uh, to segments of our electorate um, who think that these policies are applying to the absolute worst kinds of crimes that they are reading and hearing about. Um, but in fact, these policies often and make us less safe in the long term. 
um, because of how difficult they make it for people to successfully re-enter after they've served their terms of confinement um, because of the hurdles we set up. Um, so I think the way out of this is to recognize that we need to make criminal justice administration look more like the rest of administrative law. Um, and I think Frank agrees. Uh, so this is from a draft. Um, but uh, Frank points out that a truly sophisticated administrative law of crime can lead to a pars parsimonious and humane penal system. Uh, excessive punishment is evidence, among other things, of bad management. I hope this stays in, Frank, because um, I, I agree with it. Uh, and I think this key about bad management and bad policies is really central for us to take a close look at, because I think for far too long, the rhetoric, the bill of goods that have been sold to us is that these are the policies we need uh, to make us safer. That's the trade off. You have to accept this human misery. You have to somehow accept these racial disparities. That's the price for being safer and better off. Um, and in fact, uh, I think what we find when we dig deeper, and I'm going to explain some of these today, uh, what you find is they're, they're actually not good policies if that's the goal. Um, they're, they're failing in that, uh, in that effort. Um, so Frank's book focuses largely on incarceration. Um, but there's a host of surrounding policies as well that share this trait, um, where they seem to satisfy a retributive urge for harsher punishment, um, but ultimately represent, in my view, bad management. Um, and in that, I mean they're failing their goal if the goal is to make the best use of our limited public resources. Um, so I want to highlight just a few examples from my book um, to give you a sense of what I'm talking about. Um, so the opening chapter for me um, explains a dynamic that we have in criminal law in the United States, which is that we lump together people of really different levels of culpability, and we treat them all as if they are the worst possible offense in that category. Um, and there's lots of examples of this, uh, but in the interest of time, um, I'll just give you a couple. Um, and, and I'll start with one that I think people might have an intuitive sense wouldn't be like this, which is the category of sex offender. And I think when the average person thinks about that term, um, sex offender, they are probably thinking of, um, of people who commit violent acts of rape, um, people who molest children. But if you look at the actual laws that define who uh, qualifies for being a sex offender, um, you find they sweep far more broadly than that. Uh, so there was a Human Rights Watch report, for example, that found five of the states require you to go on a sex offender registry um, if you visited a prostitute. Um, and 13 states will put you on the registry if you urinated in public. 29 states require registration for teenagers who have consensual sex with another teenager. Um, and you know, I could give you examples of the kind of out, uh, cases that are particularly uh, demonstrative of how irrational these policies are. Nine-year-old plays doctor with a six-year-old um, ends up on the registry. Um, one elementary school child plays a prank on a classmate and pulls down um, the kid's pants on the registry. Um, and then the more, you know, those are, there's not as many of those, um, but they're there. Um, and more critically, what that's dominated by are teenagers who um, get on registries after they sexed with each other, after they send sexually explicit photos uh, of themselves to each other. Um, What's critical about this is that the sentencing and collateral consequences for people who are labeled as sex offenders, though, 
are not based thinking about the totality of this category. They're not thinking about the range of different people who are in it. They're not thinking about children playing pranks or people um, who go to people engaged in sex work um, or who are teenagers sending pictures to each other. They are set with the worst kinds of crimes in this category in mind. Um, and so what ends up happening is you look around the country and you find there are very harsh mandatory minimum sentences. Um, there are sex offender registration requirements um, that are often quite severe, um, often putting people on registries for life, not to mention all kinds of bans on where people can live um, and where they're allowed to go. Um, so it's not just true of this category of sex offender, it's true of a host of other categories and labels as well. Um, uh, you could look in our laws and find this just about everywhere. Um, so one is of course, we give collateral consequences to people who have felony convictions because they're all in the category of felons. Um, and that is a really wide category of behaviors. Um, and yet there are very harsh treatments that apply to everybody who's in that category. Um, we sentence all drug traffickers in many places um, who deal in certain quantities of a certain type of drug, all treated the same, um, wherever they fall on the drug trafficking hierarchy in their organization. So it doesn't matter if they're kind of a key manager um, versus they're uh, someone who's just selling to support a habit, their sentence uh, and their treatment is largely driven by the quantity of the drugs uh, and the type. Um, Three strikes laws, which you may have heard of, recidivist sentencing laws uh, for people who have repeat offenses. Um, that too tends to be these just really broad categories of people all lumped in together. Um, but the key part of this dynamic is when they are lumped in like that, um, it's not that the sentencing range or the treatment of them reflects the wide variety. It's very often the case that they are all being treated as the worst among them. Now, this is disproportionate as a matter of retributive justice and thinking about the punishment that people deserve for what they've done. Um, but what I want to emphasize is, is how pernicious it is for public safety. Um, and I think the tendency might be that people think, well, you know, maybe it's disproportionate as a matter of justice, but, you know, if we give people longer sentences or we treat them more harshly, so what? You know, don't we get more deterrence that way? Um, isn't it better for public safety to do that? And, and what I want to point out is that um, the research tells us otherwise. Um, so for starters, um, we've known for a while that it matters far more if uh, for someone trying to decide if they're going to commit a crime, they weigh way more heavily whether or not they're going to get caught uh, as opposed to the sentence length that they face if they do. Um, and the assumption that more severe sentences are better um, also just focuses on the period that someone um, is incarcerated. So if we're thinking about the incapacitation benefit. So on the one hand, we think deterrence, okay, and what we know is really much more important to think about odds of detection than severity of sentence. But then when we think about, well, but while someone is incarcerated, they're incapacitated, they can't commit offenses outside of the facility they're held, um, um, that's a benefit, um, and it is. Um, but it's important to weigh that benefit against what happens when people get out. And, and it's important here to, to note that 95% of the people who are incarcerated um, rejoin all of us. Um, they're part of our communities. And so we would want to know if their time incarcerated has an effect on them when they come out. And I think there has been a conventional assumption that, oh, it must be really great for that because they're going to be deterred from doing things again um, with not enough emphasis on, well, what if their time while they were incarcerated, though, actually 
was harmful um, from a public safety perspective? What if, in fact, being in prison itself is criminogenic? If the environment is such that it creates it, it makes it harder for people to reoffend. If being separated from their social networks and the people that they love is actually um, harmful for a public safety goal. And, and there's an interesting study out of Texas that finds after you know a certain point in somebody's sentence, each additional year that they serve causes a four to seven percent increase in their recidivism rate. Um, and that's a really important fact because it suggests that there are these tipping points in long sentences where whatever benefit we were going to get from incapacitation is going to get outweighed by the harms to reentry when people come back out um, and what those longer sentences are doing to them. Um, and if you stop to think about it, it really makes sense because longer sentences, uh, for starters, mean there's more people in prison. Um, and so there's fewer resources to go around for everyone. So there's not enough programming for everyone. Um, and it also uh, ignores the fact that people are going to age out of their criminal behavior for many of them. I'll leave it to our expert criminologist to, to give you further details on that. But this we've also known for a really long time. So we're putting people in prison and we're keeping their long past the point when they would have aged out of whatever criminal behavior they're engaged in. So at a certain point, we have uh, incarceration reaching this tipping point. Um, and it's not going to be associated with a reduction in crime, but an increase. Now, I can't tell you where that tipping point is. Uh, I will tell you in my time on the Sentencing Commission, that's what I asked every single criminologist and data person who came before us. Um, and, and no one's able to actually pinpoint it. But a rational conversation about criminal justice would recognize that it's there and seek to balance these trade-offs between long sentences, that they're just not a complete good for public safety, just the opposite, um, that in fact, they start to have just the opposite effect and make people less safe. Um, and I will point to a couple real-world examples of this that we do know about, where we have seen jurisdictions reduce their sentences and have not seen an increase in crime, right? Which is one empirical way that you could demonstrate that this is true. Um, so one example from my time on the Sentencing Commission uh, is that um, I will, we lowered all drug sentences, all federal drug sentences in the United States um, by what are two levels in the guideline manual, which in practical terms ends up being about 25 months on average uh, for a person. So, you know, about a two-year reduction in sentence. And we made the decision retroactive. Um, and that meant that, you know, more than 30,000 people in federal prison were able to get go before a judge and get their sentences reduced, and they were released early. Um, now, what's interesting about this decision uh, is that we made it as as a bipartisan sentencing commission with four Democrats and three Republicans, and we were unanimous. Um, and so in this time in America, you might ask, how could that be? Um, how could you get a unanimous decision out of four Democrats and three Republicans? Um, and the reason that we were is because we already had data from when the Sentencing Commission had done this in the past. So the Sentencing Commission had reduced crack sentences um, in 2007. Uh, had lowered them by two levels. And we were able to track what happened to the people who got the reductions over a period of five years. Um, so we could see, hey, did it matter that someone got their sentence reduced as compared to the people who served their full sentence because the reductions came too late for them to get the benefit? Um, so it was really nice because you could match people that were similarly situated for offense and criminal history. And the only difference between them um, was that one group got this reduction and one group didn't. And 
uh, five years later, um, there was no statistically significant difference in their recidivism rates. In fact, the group that got the sentencing reductions, um, they had a lower rate. Um, and so looking at that enabled the Sentencing Commission to unanimously say, we can do this and we can feel confident we can lower sentences uh, about, uh, without a cost to public safety. States around the country have done similar things. Um, we have seen them reduce their sentences and their incarceration rates without upticks in crime. Um, and, and I am confident we could do far more uh, and not see an increase. Um, so I want to spend a minute talking about how this relates to pretrial detention as well. Um, so you can see from this chart, this is our total number of people who are incarcerated. And um, if you look in the orange portion there, you see local jails. Um, and in particular, um, there's the folks who are in jail who haven't been convicted of anything. Um, and at this point, it, you know, it's about half a million people, a little shy of half a million people, who find themselves uh, incarcerated before they have been convicted of any offense. And uh, here, too, if we ask, well, how does that work for public safety? Um, you know, would that be a good thing or a bad thing? Um, and here, um, again, just like the story with incarceration and people sentenced after their conviction, if we stop and we think for a minute what it means to be detained pretrial means that you are likely going to lose your job because um, your employer's not going to really wait around uh, because you've been put in jail. Um, you often lose your housing. You get evicted. Uh, you may lose your children, uh, custody of your children, because there's no one to take care of them while you're incarcerated. This is a completely life-altering event for people, even when it's a short period of time. Uh, so when people have studied what does it mean to detain people pretrial versus not, um, they have found um, that it increases recidivism risk. So it's a parallel story to the one that we see for people who are sentenced after conviction, um, where they're more likely to recidivate when they're released than the people who weren't detained. And they control for criminal uh, history and offense type. Um, so the idea is there's something about the pretrial detention itself. And they have found that that increase is true both for the risk of more felonies and the, the risk of more misdemeanors. So, um, you know, this is a this is a risk of felony uh, reoffending as well. Um, you know, and here too, it's just to point out there are costs to these policies that I think are not part of our public discussion because the public discussion is always just around the person who's released pretrial who commits a violent offense and someone asks, why weren't they detained? Whose fault was that? Was that the prosecutor? Was that the judge? Who screwed up? Um, because surely the person ha should have been detained. And then there's often a push in jurisdictions to change their entire setup of pretrial detention um, and their whole bail regime to avoid the, that one case that makes it into the media. And what you don't get a discussion of is there is a real flip side to that. In fact, there's not the news story that says, wow, our pretrial detention policies dramatically increase the risk of future crime because we are detaining too many people. Because um, that's not a news story. There's no statistical news stories. I would watch that network, but not many people would. Um, and so as a result of that, we get a really jaded perspective on the costs and benefits of detention, both after conviction and at pretrial. Um, now, another flaw in our approach um, is thinking about what happens to people while they're detained. Um, 
And when we think about what makes them worse off, sometimes um, it's just being separated from social networks and the people that they love. Um, but it's also that we don't make investments in programming. This is a big theme um, in, in Frank's, uh, at least in Frank's draft, um, and I believe will stay in the book too. Uh, this is the awkward part about talking about a book that is not in its final form, but I feel confident it'll stay in there as well, um, which is this idea uh, that it's really important to ask what happens to people while they're incarcerated, particularly if we're not going to be reducing these populations anytime soon. Um, it should be a real focus of our reform efforts to ask, what are we doing while they're in there? Um, about 85% of the people who are incarcerated have a substance abuse problem. Um, and yet, about 11% of people get any kind of treatment at all for that. Um, we see the same thing if we ask about other categories, like people with mental health needs, and whether they're getting mental health treatment, cognitive behavioral treatment, vocational training, educational programming. These interventions are cost-benefit justified. They work. They are good investments. If they were on my administrative law side of the ledger, um, they would all be upheld as, um, as good public policy interventions. Um, but we don't do that. Um, we're, we're not doing that. And instead, uh, less than 10% of people who are incarcerated are, are getting this kind of programming, um, even though these would be good investments and we would save far more money um, by making the investment uh, because of what it would mean for reduced recidivism later and, and lowering incarceration. Um, we also don't uh, do other things when it comes to confinement that as a public policy matter would make sense um, that aren't so much about programming but are just about the way that uh, prisons operate. Um, so for example, we often put people far away um, from their families and their support networks. Um, but that's a terrible idea if our goal was public safety. We want them to be near their communities, their families, the places where when they come out they're going to get jobs. Um, so putting them far away is a, is a terrible public policy idea if that's our goal. Similarly, we want them in a place where people can easily visit. Um, but we, we are making it hard for families, um, particularly families who are poor. They're disproportionately poor. These visits are tremendously difficult for people. Um, we make phone calls expensive, uh, even though um, that policy also is terrible as a public policy matter. We would want calls, um, frankly, to be free um, because keeping people connected is really valuable. Um, um, so we might ask, well, if these are all such great ideas, um, why aren't we doing them? Well, one reason is that prisons are not held accountable for any of the outcomes that happen after people leave their custody. We're not evaluating them to say, hey, how'd things work while they were with you? Um, and then what happens to people later? Um, and so when they're doing their own cost-benefit analysis, that's not really a key part of what institutionally they're focused on, right? So when they're thinking about things like prison phone calls, they're thinking of, one, they can actually make a fair amount of money uh, from their cut of charging people for calls. And two, they don't like it when some of the calls, um, you know, not all the calls are good calls. Um, and so, you know, some of the calls could be calls to engage in criminal activity. So they have to monitor those, right? They'd have to ha have a mechanism in place to monitor them. Um, but they only focus on those things when they're making their policies, and they're not thinking about this trade-off, which is good for the rest of us, that's good for the public, because on net, um, Charging people for calls, one, does nothing to help with the monitoring. Um, it just means there's fewer calls, but it doesn't mean that the people who can somehow afford to pay for them are less, dang are, are less dangerous than people who, who can't. Um, and 
it's it's also the case that when prisons and prison officials are making decisions about other things within their four walls, um, that they are really focused on the here and now for them. And it's not that they're engaging in bad faith, and I'm not suggesting that. I think this is just basic human behavior. Um, so if someone is misbehaving in front of them, and they think, well, solitary confinement is a disciplinary tool that they want to use because it helps them maintain order at the moment, they're going to think about that. And they may not be thinking about the fact that putting someone in solitary confinement, um, in addition to just being really indescribably cruel um, and the damage it does to them, it, that damage lasts when they come back out. Um, and so it's very hard from a readjustment perspective. But again, the official might not be balancing that out. So when we think about a setup like that, that doesn't really hold prisons uh, and their administration accountable for how their policies affect people when they come back out and rejoin society, um, we shouldn't really be surprised um, that they're not focused on it and that we have really abysmal recidivism rates for people when they come out of prison. Um, with you know more than 70% who are released uh, have new arrests or convictions within five years after they come out. Um, and, and I don't think we should expect much different if we're not evaluating them to, to try to get those lower and to try to have that be a more positive intervention. Um, now, the reason that doesn't happen um, is because I think there is a tendency in our society to just blame the person. Well, that's not the prison's fault, right? That's the fault of the individual who comes out um, and decides to commit a new crime or comes out and decides to keep taking drugs. And if we see this as just a problem of personal responsibility, we never ask how prisons are doing because we just think they're kind of just like place that the individual goes and then the individual comes back out and it's all the individual all the way. Um, but that is a pretty strange way to view a massive government program of intervention. Um, you know, this is really, if you think about um, government programs, you would be hard pressed to find many bigger than our use of, of prisons and jails. Um, so this is a massive government intervention on a enormous scale. And we should be at really asking government accountability, are you doing a good job when you're doing this? Are you making things better? Um, are you making things worse? And I think you know we have gone away from that because in part of this turn away from seeing um, uh, the notion of rehabilitation as possibly being something that could happen. You know, I think that is definitely something that occurred in the 1970s, 1980s. This idea that, well, things aren't working very well, the interventions aren't working very well. Um, and then that led to policy changes that reflected that sentiment that um, really nothing works to rehabilitate. Um, and so what you end up is a focus on facilities that are really just warehousing people. Um, and and it, it has other effects as well. So it leads to this idea not to really ask what are the interventions in prison. Um, but it also means we lose a lot of the second looks of people themselves over time. Because um, if you don't think that people can change, if you don't think that that's possible, then you don't need to look at them as time passes to ask if they have, right? Um, and so that also explains why we've seen a decline in parole, why we've seen a decline in clemency, and other second look mechanisms. Um, so I'll give you one example of that uh, that I think 
proves this point pretty well because there was a lot of talk about um, President Obama's clemency grants, uh, which I was you know, quite grateful for, um, that he granted as many people clemency as he did. Um, but if you look at what he did in historical perspective, um, what you notice is his overall grant rate didn't even exceed Ronald Reagan. Um, and President Nixon had more commutations than President Obama did. Um, so although he talked about having um, more numbers, that, uh, clemency uh, commutation numbers that were higher than other presidents, actually his rate um, was, was fairly low. Um, and you see that better here um, when you see how many people he denied, um, which uh, is more denials than any modern president uh, by a mile. Um, now, is that because um, one would think you needed to deny more people because the overall population of those incarcerated was somehow worse? Yeah, I would argue just the opposite. We had expanded it so much to cover people who had committed drug offenses and who were there serving mandatory minimums where the judge really was not able actually to give the sentence that they wanted, that if anything, the rate should have gone, should have gone up. Um, but I think part of this um, is just this political environment that it's risky for any executive to give clemency um, because they too don't want that news story about the person that they give it to that ends up on the news just like the bail story. So, you know, the kind of the one case going awry is a common theme in criminal justice. Now, in administrative law, we don't do that, um, right? We're not supposed to do that. We are supposed to kind of rationally say, okay, the vaccine has, you know, this rare outcome in some cases, but overall, there are enormous public health benefits. We should do it. You know, air travel, there may be an accident, but overall is enormously beneficial for society. And so we try to figure out how to minimize risks while keeping the overall approach, uh, which we know to be beneficial. But in criminal law, we don't do that kind of balancing. We let the outlier case drive what we do. Um, and weirdly, it means that criminal law ends up being kind of oddly frozen in time as well, because we make these decisions about people, um, and sometimes we give them decades-long sentences, 30 years, 20 years. Um, and don't reevaluate them, um, even though it would defy everything we know about human nature to, to think that those people and their attitudes may not have changed. Or, for example, that we as a society may not have changed how we view particular crimes. Um, if you even just think about the changes in perspective on marijuana over the years, I think it becomes obvious that you want to take second looks at things um, and reevaluate. Uh, but we have created an environment in many jurisdictions in the United States where that just isn't in the cards for folks. There's not going to be a second look. Um, even though we might have an initial panic over a kind of crime, we put the policy in place, we don't get to revisit it. Um, and the politics of this make it very hard to do that. Um, so uh, we've seen parole uh, either disappear or decline dramatically in jurisdictions uh, because of single cases of a parolee committing an offense. Um, we've seen the decline in clemency, in good time credits that people can earn while they're incarcerated, um, compassionate release, uh, retroactive adjustments. Um, and just to give you historical perspective, it wasn't always like this in America. Um, we had 70% release release rates for people on parole in the United States as recently as the 1970s. Um, clemency was a routine thing that governors and the president um, had given uh, before parole came on the stage to essentially replace it. So between the two of them, we were actually giving lots of second looks in our, in our system. Um, all right, so one more example that I want to give you. Um, 
is collateral consequences, because um, I think you'll see the same dynamic there as well. Um, so there are, you know, upwards of 47,000 collateral consequences on people who have committed crimes. Um, and they range uh, from making it more difficult for people to get housing and licenses um, to restrictions on voting. There are just a range of things that happen to people after they have been convicted. Um, and there are about um, 19 million people who've been convicted of felonies in America. So these are affecting an awful lot of people. Um, and I just want to focus on the fact how so many of these things make it very difficult for people to um, successfully rejoin after serving terms of incarceration and stay on a path of um, law-abiding behavior. So take housing. Okay, so housing um, is a crucial need for people who are released from prison. So a third of the people who are released from prison are homeless within six months. Um, and yet, Congress has passed very strict bans on access to public housing. And some of the harshest target people who are engaged in drug trafficking. Um, so if uh, someone in your household um, is selling or using drugs, even if they're not doing it in the public housing itself, they're just doing it someplace, um, your whole household can be evicted. Um, and if we think about how hard it is to stay on a law-abiding path when you don't have a home, you know, how much more difficult is that to go get a job? Um, it makes everything harder. Um, similarly, Congress, when it ended welfare as we know it in 1996, it said to states that they had to impose lifetime bans on people with drug-related felony convictions from either getting federal welfare aid um, or food stamps. Now, states can opt out of this. They can opt out of the lifetime ban, and some have done so. Um, but people with a felony drug conviction in America are still fully or partially excluded from food stamp benefits in 30 states um, and in 36 states from welfare assistance. Um, again, this is transitional aid that really helps people um, make the transition into employment, but, but it's setting up a hurdle in their way. Um, Congress also created additional incentives for states to create more collateral consequences. So it passed a law that said states would lose 10% of their federal highway dollars unless the state passed laws to revoke or suspend driver's licenses of people who had been convicted of drug felonies. Um, so here, too, some of the states have decided the money's not worth it. Um, but that's still in 18 jurisdictions, which account for 48% of our country's residents, there is a ban on a driver's license. Now, when you go look, if you have this um, drug felony conviction. Now, in a majority of these jurisdictions, um, there are no more than 2% of the workers are able to rely on public transportation to get to work. All right, so if you think about what the situation we've just set up for these folks is, they then have to decide, are they going to drive on a suspended license? There's no public transportation option. Um, so maybe they can't get uh, employment. So what are they going to do? We're making it really, really difficult for people um, to re-enter society and, and make transitions to law-abiding behaviors. Um, and again, note we're going to lump all kinds of people together in for these consequences. That dynamic exists for collateral consequences as well. Um, so. Uh, there's many, many examples of these. I just wanted to give you a flavor of some of them. Um, so the next key question is kind of why do we end up with this, um, this result, uh, if instead, if they're so bad? Um, and I've already alluded to some of the political dynamics that create this. Um, this is a system uh, that's not really the outcome of rational reflection, um, but really by dysfunctional politics. Um, and as uh, Frank notes in his draft, um, the 
cumulative effect of this um, is that we end up with mass incarceration. Um, uh, so when we look at um, how this all happens, you know, I think one of the really important themes in his book is this idea that, you know, it's not that there was one central planner that did this. Um, it wasn't that it was that. Instead, we have lots of pockets of discretion in American criminal policymaking. Um, prosecutors have discretion. Judges often have discretion. Governors, presidents to exercise clemency, parole officials, lots of actors with discretion. Um, and what's interesting is how basically the political climate creates a situation where those actors choose to exercise their discretion in a way that leads to um, enormous punitive consequences for people, um, and in particularly prison. Um, because uh, Frank's book notes that it's not that we see a general trend to creating um, uh, new crimes um, or increasing minimum or maximum punishments, but it's this kind of dynamic of how people are letting the politics affect their exercise of discretion. So what does that? What creates that kind of political environment that leads people to do this? Um, so we do have a political process that is focused on particular stories that get a lot of attention in the media. And if you study what the media covers, um, you find there's a pretty steady drumbeat of offenses uh, involving the most violent cases um, that make people really angry. Uh, or they'll talk about, if they talk about sentencing, it's a focus on sentences that are too lenient um, so that people get upset about that. Um, politicians know that's what's being portrayed. Um, they also know that they can drum up support for themselves and get attention if they point out that there's things that people are afraid of or that make people angry. Um, and in addition to the fact that elected officials do this, we now have a group of people that have a stake in keeping uh, punishment the way that it is, a financial stake um, for some, uh, because they are bail bondsmen and they don't want to lose the ability to continue to have their industry operate if there's pretrial detention reform, or they make money off of prison phone calls, or they have a professional interest that's maybe not strictly speaking financial, um, but it makes their job easier to have certain policies in place, um, which is certainly true, for example, for prosecutors, um, whose jobs are tremendously easier if they have mandatory minimums to threaten people with and longer sentences uh, if someone were to decide to exercise their trial right. Um, so you have all those folks with a stake in um, maintaining punitive practices because of how helpful they are in doing their job. Um, and that creates a dynamic that makes it very hard to dismantle uh, because of a dynamic that, that gives everyone the incentive to keep things where they're going. Um, and it all starts from a public mood um, that sentences are too lenient uh, because they are thinking about the cases that they're seeing. Um, and here uh, there's information in, in Frank's book that talks a lot about this. Um, that there are people who uh, have this view that sentences are too lenient. Um, there's studies that show uh, this view, though, is not tied to people who live in areas that have high rates as, uh, of crime. Um, so the sentiment is not like it's related to higher crime rates, and that would explain some of the things we're seeing. Um, they just have a general sensibility, um, which I do think comes in part from how things get covered in the media. Um, so this mood that things are too lenient uh, and how people view sentencing um, doesn't vary even while crime rates do. Um, 
And so uh, it's, it's not the case that either a public mood uh, is tracking crime rates, um, nor is it the case uh, that our incarceration boom is tracking crime rates. Um, the incarceration boom um, may track this popular perception that things are too lenient and all these groups that want to have uh, harsher sentences, but that is also not tracking crime rates. Um, so it's not the case that this is tied together in that way. Um, instead, there's a political dynamic that's working here about how people are thinking about crime, even if it's not borne out by actual statistics. Um, so. Uh, Frank's book reminds us it's not just the public that thinks that sentences are too lenient. Um, it's really interesting, I think, that he points out that the group of people who go into uh, prosecution uh, and law enforcement really have strong views on where sentences are. Um, and that matters for a, a few reasons. So one is um, it's really important to know how your district attorney, people who are prosecutors, are really critical lobbyists for punishment policies in America. Um, they are Their thumbprints are everywhere when you look at almost any law that affects criminal punishment. Um, they either directly as a district attorney or part of a lobbying association of district attorneys, um, they are almost always in opposition to any kind of sentencing reform. Um, we're seeing it play out right now in New York where we passed uh, bail reform, which is going to kick in in January, and they are sounding alarms all over the place about how bad this is going to be. Um, uh, now, they have no data, um, but they are talking about individual cases. They're using anecdotes. They're using the same playbill that I'm sure you all know well. Um, I'll give you an example, not from New York, um, but it's, my, it's one of my favorites. Uh, this is from a district attorney in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, who, as it turns out, uh, he had his own misbehavior. Um, but before that happened and he got in trouble of his own, um, he was pushing for longer sentences for people who were selling heroin. Uh, he wanted to have much higher sentences in state prison, especially for repeat offenders. And he advocated for this. And now I'm going to quote him because this is my, I like this quote because it's so honest. He said, why? Because I'm pissed off and we need to do something about it. I actually think that's one of the more honest sentiments uh, about how we ended up with where we are. Um, is someone's pissed off. They think something's too lenient. They're mad about a crime they have just heard about. And they think um, we need to do something about it. And the something is a longer sentence. Um, it's an expansion of some collateral consequence. Um, and it makes it seem like they're doing something about the problem. And no one is bothering to ask, does that something work? Um, is that the best thing we could do? Um, and in many cases, it's not. And it ends up being ineffectual. Um, but it creates a political environment where it's very hard to be on the other side of this. Um, so what you end up seeing from this political environment um, is our institutional backgrounds and structures in the United States have changed over the decades. Um, because, you know, although a lot of this was sparked by an initial rise in violent crime and a legitimate concern of people that we had to do things differently, you know, what I think is, is valuable, among the many valuable things in Frank's book, is kind of how that then takes on a life of its own, though. So, you know, you kind of initially respond to an instance of higher violent crime rates in the 1970s, for example, and 1980s. But you create all kinds of institutional changes as a result of that. that long last why you created them in the first place. And then they're very hard to undo. Um, so one of the things that ends up happening is um, we had both um, 
doctrinal changes that lead to a decline in jury trials, um, that uh, the Supreme Court says it's okay for prosecutors to threaten people with really long sentences if they go uh, to trial and exercise their jury trial right. You know, people weren't sure the Supreme Court was going to say that was okay. It kind of had been done, but it had been done kind of on the down low. Once the Supreme Court comes out and says, well, that's okay, um, that increases, right? And so it, it diminishes the power of the jury, um, as does having more mandatory minimum sentences, which makes it easier for prosecutors to say, either plead guilty now or I'm going to charge you with this uh, crime that has a mandatory minimum attached. And then you will, if you are convicted, know you're going to get 10 years, 20 years, 30 years life. Um, similarly, pretrial detention increasing means that people will plead to get out of jail, right? They just want to get out. Um, so they'll plead and take time served. Um, so you really see a decline in the jury as a result of, a, of these factors changing. We talked about the decline in clemency and parole, these second looks that take place. Um, and, and we also really see um, far less court oversight, um, in part because of mandatory sentences that makes it difficult for judges, in part because of some changes to the bench itself that, that I want to talk about. Um, and so what you see are institutional changes that are really critical to pay attention to, because if you're going to dismantle this, you need to think about these institutional dynamics and how you're going to undo them. Um, uh, and in addition to that, uh, I think you also need to think about um, money. Uh, so some of the themes in Frank's book talk about this, this kind of insidious momentum, as he describes it, of mass incarceration. Um, so we invested money in things. And when you start to invest money in things, when you hire more district attorney, um, ADAs, more assistant prosecutors, uh, when you hire more law enforcement agents, um, now they're in place and they have to do something, right? They're there. Um, when you build more prisons, um, you can fill them. Um, and it's very hard to close them. And it's very hard to lower the number of people who work in these jobs. Um, and so those are really important changes that create a vested stake in keeping things as they are because people's livelihoods depend upon it. Um, in addition uh, to that, uh, to thinking about how law enforcement budgets have uh, ballooned, Frank's book reminds us that um, it has created an environment and a culture where the measure of success for folks um, can be these long sentences um, and having kind of for prosecutors, that's that's a badge of showing that they've been they've been good at their job. Um, so we need to think kind of culturally how that gets dismantled. Um, because if that's the measure by which people are judging themselves, um, then, then we'd have to figure out what other measures could be used instead that may be better. Um, and again, thinking about the costs of how expensive incarceration is, um, is that we also have, because of our, our structure in states, that your local district attorney, when they put somebody um, in state prison, that doesn't cost them very much money um, uh, because they don't have to pay for it. Um, and so it's a free resource um, that, uh, as Frank uh, and his co-author uh, had uh, had, had talked about before um, and talks about here. You know, we have a, a, a it's a correctional free lunch. It creates um, financial disincentives for reform. Um, so in the time that I have left, I'm going to quickly go through three pillars of reform that I think try to dismantle this institutional dynamic that I think is critical. Um, so I want to start with prosecutors. Um, and here, um, 
you know, that's an, a set of actors who use their discretion to increase incarceration. Um, and so one corrective is to think about how to rein that in. Um, and I think there's a host of things that we could be doing on that score. Um, so, you know, one is thinking about the way in which they do use pretrial detention as a leverage point for themselves. Um, and cash bail is often a big part of that. Um, we can eliminate cash bail without any effects on public safety. It's just penalizing people who are poor. Um, we could dramatically lower pretrial detention and that has an enormous effect on prosecutors' ability to leverage um, uh, pleas mandatory minimums. So these are some policy things that, you know, are not only good policies in their own right, but they really do affect the leverage that prosecutors have. Um, open file discovery, second looks. Um, but I think it's also important to uh, focus on, on how you go about doing that, um, how you get that. And we are seeing a movement around the country to elect more progressive prosecutors. Um, and here I will just say, and I'm happy to talk about this more in questions because I'm getting my time is running out signs, um, that when we're thinking about what it actually actually means for someone to be progressive. Um, if your goal is actually to have a prosecutor who's focused on data and evidence and what actually works to reduce, um, to reduce crimes, um, then they should be out there on the front lines um, advocating and lobbying for these changes. Even when it's against what might be the kind of professional interest of making their job easier, they should be guardians of public safety more broadly than um, and advocating for exactly some of these reforms that I'm talking about. Um, there are other things that they could be doing as well, um, and I'm happy to talk about that more um, when we get to questions, if you have them. Um, but one of them is also making them internalize the costs of incarceration, creating financial incentives so when they're deciding to send people to prison, it's just not completely free for them. Um, so either financial incentives to give them rewards when they don't, um, or penalize them when they do. Um, second key reform, an area of institutional change really does get at this idea of using um, the agency model or how we we think about agencies. Because um, really, prosecutors can't go it alone here, even the most progressive ones. Um, they're not responsible for this whole category of criminal justice policies. And, and we do need people who do take a coordinated approach to things. Um, this is not a problem unique to criminal justice, right? This is a problem that uh, is true across regulatory spaces and areas when we regulate health and safety. Um, and so what we want is to make sure that we have people who are looking at the best evidence we have and doing the best they can with the information available to us. Um, and so if we think about using an agency model, we can use that as a potential path forward, right? So they could study incarceration policies, things like visitation policies, things like um, where people are confined, collateral consequences, second look, um, and give us kind of the best that we know uh, on our existing knowledge. Um, uh, Frank talks about this in his book as well, uh, talks about sentencing commissions of places that have done some good, um, particularly when they have been uh, limited by capacity constraints because those capacity constraints are, are very helpful um, in rationalizing you have limited resources. Um, so if, you, if you'd have to build additional prisons as a result of that, um, then maybe we shouldn't do it. Maybe we should find a way to think about are there different policies we could pursue. Um, and for example, uh, Frank highlights, and, and many of us as well, the Minnesota Commission, the Minnesota Sentencing Commission is an administrative agency um, that has done a pretty good job in terms of using its ability to rationalize resources uh, as a potential model. Um, I agree with that. Um, I think the experience with sentencing commissions in the states backs this up. Um, not all of them are great, but on net, they've actually done quite well. Um, 
sentencing commissions have gotten a bad rap because of the one that I worked for. Um, uh, and I totally get that um, because uh, that is, 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 is true um, and it's important to ask um, why that sentencing commission was particularly bad and why the others have done better. Um, and so when we're thinking about using sentencing commissions or using agencies, um, it's important to kind of take the best agencies that we've had using criminal justice policies as opposed to looking at the worst and deciding, well, then it can't work at all. Um, so I would like to just kind of the cautionary tale on sentencing commissions is just to say um, states with sentencing commissions have slowed the growth and corrections um, in, in correction spending in their states um, and have saved money and they have uh, slowed the growth in incarceration. So this is a model that can work um, and we've learned some lessons from those commissions of how they can be designed. That's the key. You need to design these agencies to reflect the political environment in which they work, which means that um, they really do need uh, to have these kind of uh, capacity constraints built into their operation and frankly they need to look more like other administrative agencies that have to explain why they're doing what they're doing um, to courts uh, so that it's not just all politics so you actually have policy making that's not arbitrary and capricious. Um, I could say lots more about the agency model but I want to be uh, sensitive to the time and get to my third uh, category of things um, which is I want to bring the courts back into the conversation. So um, when we think about what sparks change in American society, um, certainly it could be this movement to elect progressive prosecutors. That's good. Um, certainly to the extent there's a movement for criminal justice reform, I hope it's used to have some of these agencies put in place because I think that's the kind of long-term thing we need. Um, but the other thing that can spark change is a court decision. Um, when our courts protect constitutional values, that's actually critically important. Um, the Supreme Court did this. California's reforms would have never gotten underway at all if it weren't for a Supreme Court decision in Plata that held that their prisons were unconstitutionally overcrowded. Um, so if we think about the two biggest reasons for incarceration drop, uh, the biggest incarceration drops, one was the U.S. sentencing uh, commission, you know, 30,000 people being let out of federal prison early is a big one. Um, this one is enormous in California, and it was sparked by a court decision. So we see both the importance of an agency, and we see the importance of a court. Um, but Plata, and I cannot emphasize this enough, was an outlier Supreme Court decision. By and large, the Supreme Court has done nothing to check mass incarceration. Um, and in fact, it has done nothing even though there are doctrinal areas where it should be doing more. Um, so we do in fact have um, an Eighth Amendment that bans cruel and unusual punishments. Um, but the Supreme Court has done very little outside the death penalty to police it. It has created immunity doctrines for police and prosecutors out of whole cloth that are not to be found in the text of anything. Um, it has failed to enforce uh, the fact that you should not be imprisoned in, the, in America because you're too poor to pay. Um, uh, and federal courts around the country, unfortunately, are failing to enforce that protection. So people are being uh, incarcerated because of fines and fees that they have not paid. Um, so when we think about, well, why might that be? Why do we have a bench that hasn't done more? I want to just emphasize the fact of who's on it. Um, and this is something I didn't need to limit it to the bench, by the way. Uh, we have former prosecutors kind of dominating pu public life. Um, they run for office, um, they are governors and legislators, um, but I 
do want to focus on the fact that they are our judges um, in disproportionate amounts. Um, so if you look at the federal bench, um, it is really an enormous number of people on the federal bench uh, have previously served as prosecutors. Um, and as compared to people who served as um, criminal, uh, either did public defense work, you can see it's a four to one ratio. Um, and this imbalance persisted even under President Obama, who was very claimed to be very interested in criminal justice reform. So before he took office, it was 43% uh, of the judges were prosecutors and 10% had public defense experience. Um, after his eight years, 41% had prosecution experience and 14% had public defense experience. So the needle was moved like that much. Um, and we I was recently at an event at NYU that Judge Restrepo of the Third Circuit was at on this topic, and he did some of his own counting. Um, so he found of the 19, we've had 19 Supreme Court justices with prosecution experience and zero with public defense. Of the 163 active circuit judges in the United States, 53, so these are appellate, 53 were former prosecutors, I'm sorry, 57 were former prosecutors, five were public defenders. If you look at state courts, it's similar. Um, states with elected Supreme Court justices, 39% were former prosecutors, 8% former defenders. Um, I know you might think, oh, maybe it's better in states that appoint their justices. In appointed jurisdictions, 53% were former prosecutors and 3% were former defenders. Um, in addition, Cato did a study of how many judges uh, on the federal bench, what if you didn't even limit yourself to just criminal prosecution, just government side, like they were government side, civil, for example, enforcers. And when you do that, it's a seven to one ratio in favor of uh, people who worked for the government. Um, I think that's really important. I think it's really important to ask if it's healthy to have a bench that's this imbalanced when their role is to check the government. Um, their role is to help check the government against individual abuse. I think it's really important to have more people on the bench who have spent careers representing individuals um, against the government um, and protecting individual liberties. Um, so I think it should be a critical path for reform that we think about this imbalance on both the federal um, and the state bench. Um, and I think it's part of Frank's point about actors with discretion, and I think courts are a big part of that. These folks have a lot of discretion, um, and I think we should, people who are interested in criminal justice reform, who are focused on prosecutors, should, in addition, um, really think about judges as well. And so those are my big three institutional pillars. I will stop there, and I think there's time for questions. There's okay. Can we go over here? Okay. Okay, I have note cards from a bunch of you. I apologize in advance. We can't get to all of your questions, but we will see what we can do and try to group some of them together. Uh, so one of the things that comes out in that question is this trade-off between expertise and public engagement. Uh, and the idea that in addition to having agency experts, we should also be engaging with people who actually live in the communities that are affected by both crime, but also policing. And so can you say a word about kind of in this more administrative model where the role is for kind of people in the trenches? So the public is absolutely, I think, I can hear me? Acoustics are pretty good. Okay, all right, so I'll try and be as loud as I can. Um, so the public is critical to all this. So it's never the case, and sometimes I, I have been um, kind of a caricature of my argument is that somehow this is like ruled by experts and, you know, pointy-headed folks telling these people what to do. Um, that's no more true in the kind of 
things I'm talking about, then it, unless you think that is true, for example, on how we regulate the air and the environment. I mean, we still vote for our representatives and they set the policy for environmental law. We just have an agency in place that actually looks at the scientific evidence and tries to achieve the goals that the public has but by looking at information that's available so we get better policies. Um, you know, occupational work settings, same thing. It's, we, we, you, it's the same democracy um, that we've always had. It's just a question of how you get that democracy to work better um, by getting information in there. Um, because it's just not the case that the public is expert on everything. I, you know, I kind of fear we are living in a time um, where that view, because of internet searches, maybe come, you know, people might think, well, I Googled it, um, and you know, I didn't come up with an outcome that suggested anything that was different. Uh, you know, it's just not true, and it's not true that criminal law is you know, just all moral intuition and gut instincts, and, and I think um, there is a sense that that might be true, but it's, it's not, right? We know more about things that work and don't work and what is cost effective and what's not. And the issue is if the public cares about public safety, and I really believe they do, um, there is a way to get better outcomes with better institutional models put in place and to save their taxpayer dollars. So, you know, all this is against a backdrop of still having um, public engagement, still having local communities decide what's best. You know, none of that would change. The only thing that would change is that you would be able to get um, some of the irrational um, results that would be something the public wouldn't want out of there. So, you know, I think I see them as completely compatible unless, and I will say this caveat, there are folks who think the entire administrative state um, is contradictory to all this. And so I guess I will say, because it's kind of using that model for criminal justice, if you know, one is in that camp and would like to get rid of all of our health and safety agencies, then they're probably not persuaded by this. But, but if you think we are actually a healthier country because of their interventions, and just so you know, the data shows that we are, um, the same could be true of criminal justice. Um, so building off of that, uh, another theme was this idea kind of as, instead of talking about public safety that we should maybe be talking about public wellness. So even if you take an administrative model in criminal justice, it still is going to be siloed. It's a sentencing commission or a public safety commission or a prosecutor's office that is perhaps better designed. How do you actually pull the lens back and draw kind of some of the balances between public safety and its natural or public safety agencies and their alternatives, like public health and social services and all of the other things that are essential for more of a kind of cohesive model. Yeah, no, it's really important. I mean, particularly, we, do, we don't actually have a central planning agency, you know, like the government agency that balances everything. You know, that, that starts to get into new territory for sure. Um, and so it's a question of how can you get alternative models that are going to be considered? I think agencies that specialize in criminal justice are capable of doing some of that work. I think they're, I'm sorry? Okay. Uh, I, I think they're capable of doing some of that work. But I also think uh, that there's a limit. You know, it's, they're not going to become public health agencies, but they can at least study within their world of criminal justice, or if you're just kind of within the administration of criminal law, um, you could be doing better with our limited resources than what we are doing, um, even if you don't kind of radically transform into a public health model or radically trans. You know, if you really, you know, if we were really meta analyzing these things, I would say we need to invest in education and we need to. To invest in um, communities, in jobs, and in infrastructure. I mean, that's just all true, you know, pre-K. Um, but but that's you know that's a different set of um, 
politics and a different set of institutional reforms. And I'm actually making a much more modest claim, which is within criminal justice and what we do in criminal justice, we are woefully um, underutilizing our resources and could make a better use of, of those. You know? And you know, I do think if we started doing that, it will free up funds that my hope is that jurisdictions would use for these other things, but you know, they don't always. We have seen jurisdictions that have changed some of their criminal justice policies. They are saving money as a result. Their crime rates are down, um, but they get to choose because of the public. You know, the public gets to choose um, what it wants to invest in, and it's not always in some of those longer term results. It's just a, you know, it's, it's just one of the sad truths of our democracy. Um, we don't do a great job at long term thinking um, and long term planning, you know, elections come every two, four years. Um, and so those folks want to have things that they can point to the next time they are up for election. Um, and it's tough to say, oh, I invested in this program that you're going to see 18 years from now. Wow there's going to be a big difference. You know, they're going to be out of office by then. So it's not a great environment for those longer-term investments. But, but even with those limitations, the limitation of just you're just in your criminal law box and it's not a great political environment for long-term, if you started doing more of this structure where agencies had to explain what they were doing, you would see really big shifts in some of these policies. And you know, even if some of them were just getting rid of these collateral, you know, 47,000 collateral consequences, I guarantee you if we started really studying which ones are good and which ones aren't for public safety, you're not going to have 47,000 of those. Um, and you know, that's going to do a lot of good, even if it's not doing you know, the absolute best possible scenario that we could have. Uh, with one minute remaining, I'm going to sneak in one last question, uh, and it's about the role of race in this whole yep. process. I know, but realized giving you a minute to answer that is a little unfair. The question specifically was to what extent race played a role in Obama's kind of hesitancy to be more uh, engaged in the clemency process. But I guess I just want to ask that more broadly, is how does that kind of fit into the story that you're telling? Yeah, so I mean, on President Obama, I think he's just a cautious person. I mean, I really do. I think he, um, after trying for eight years to get more dramatic changes on some of these fronts, um, uh, I just think that's his temperament. I think he's, and, and you know, could it be that there's um, a fact that he may have felt bolder if he was trying to do some of these things not as an African-American man? You know, maybe. Um, but, but I also think that he is he's kind of cautious and moderate by nature. Um, and, and believes in kind of a going slower approach. Uh, and I do think recent statements he's made um, about our current, uh, our current political environment reflect that to be true. Um, so on the bigger question of race, though, um, you know, you cannot ignore that these policies everywhere you look um, are tainted by racial biases and assumptions, all of them, um, you know, from the collateral consequences to how people are treated in prison. You know, they're certainly affecting people of all races, but I do think the politics of all this, um, everywhere you look, um, sometimes coded and sometimes not so coded, uh, racial disparities emerge when you look at these things. Um, and it makes it, frankly, more difficult in some ways then to figure out how you're going to solve, because you're not just kind of trying to solve the politics of criminal justice, but you're trying to solve the politics of race in America, uh, which is, you know, it's no easy task for anyone. Um, having said that, I will say it does help to focus people away from rhetoric and emotions and biases to information and data, you know, because then when you start to do that, and what's what's nice about that is so often these policies, if you just kind of look at them dispassionately, um, what they do end up doing though is disproportionately benefit the same communities who have suffered the most under the previous policies. And so when you lower sentences, when you change some of these collateral consequences, um, what you are seeing 
is although they weren't all targeted with racial justice in mind, um, they have a disproportionate benefit for communities of color because those are the same communities that suffer disproportionately from having them. So I do think there's a way, there, there are things we could do that's more explicit than that. And I do have some suggestions in, in my book, for example, about thinking about racial disparities directly. That, you know, that's something, there's racial impact statements could be used in, in policies um, to really focus people on those things. So I think it could be done more proactively, but I do think we all have to be honest in terms of the politics in America. Um, and it's a tough hurdle. Great. Well, uh, please uh, join me in thanking Professor Barco. Thank you. This has been Experto Crede, the Minnesota Law Review podcast. You can find us on the web at minnesotalawreview.org. Follow us on Twitter at Minnesota Law Rev. To subscribe to our podcast, please visit soundcloud.com slash Minnesota Law or find us at your preferred podcast provider. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the University of Minnesota, the University of Minnesota Law School, or Minnesota Law Review. None of the content should be considered legal advice.